All right, I'll invite you to take your Bibles and open to Psalm 146. This will be our last week in the Psalms before we start our Advent next week. I want to begin this morning by telling you something that I've told you before. And I'm okay with the repetition because I think repetition can be a good thing. I want to share with you something from the Lord's Prayer, but it's something different than what I shared with you from the Lord's Prayer last week. And again, you've heard this before from me. But when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he gave them this model prayer, and he begins that prayer by addressing God, our Father in heaven. Maybe you know what I'm going to say. The prayer starts by calling God our Father, which is a reminder to those of us who are in Christ that we have been brought into the family of God. That we have, you and I, through Christ, God as our Father. We are his children and he is our Father. We pray to him this way. But that's not all it says, is it? The prayer continues, our Father in heaven. As we pray to the one in heaven, we acknowledge that our Father is the sovereign one who, who rules over all things. He's the creator, the, Santa, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, is the one that we call our father. He calls us his children. And I just want you to let that set in for just a minute. Consider that. That we can go to someone and relate to him as a father while also acknowledging that he is the creator and sustainer and sovereign of all the world. Let's go one step further. Not only is he our father, and not only is he the sovereign one over all things, but we have been invited to come to him in prayer, knowing that he hears us. Friend, he, he listens to your prayers. The God of all things. One step further. He's our father. He's sovereign king. He hears your prayers. And maybe this has already been baked in, but he's able to answer them. Whatever you ask, it's within his power. He is our father who is in heaven. And I'm bringing that up again this morning because as we come to Psalm 146, we're coming to a psalm of praise. The psalmist is calling us to praise God, to praise him because he can be trusted. And as he describes this God who deserves our praise and who can be trusted, he basically tells us two things about him. First, he makes it clear that the God who is worthy of our praise and deserves our trust is the sovereign creator God who rules over all. And then second, he tells us in Psalm 146 that he's faithful to care for the lowly and the weak. So again, we see these two things side by side. The power and the sovereignty of God, his kingly rule, and his care for those of us who are weak and needy. You can think of it this way. He is both able and willing. You probably have people in your lives who would do anything to help another person. But they're limited. You know people like that, right? Who would do anything 
to help someone else, but they don't always have what it takes. On the other hand, there are people who seemingly have everything, and they have the power and the money and the influence, but they aren't willing. Or maybe we don't know how to connect to them, right? Maybe they use all their power and their influence for their own purposes. Think about a politician. Hypothetically, for the sake of an illustration. Someone who hypothetically could go to Washington and have the position and power of influence and yet become self-serving and never really do anything for those whom he represents. I'm not saying it happens. But if it did, it would illustrate this point. That there are some who are able, but not willing. And yet, when we come to God, what we're going to see in Psalm 146 is we come to one who is both able and willing. He is both sovereign, and he cares for the lowly and the weak. And so, this is the call. Because he is these things, praise him and trust him. That's where we're headed. So if you get lost, just think back to that, and that should keep us on track. Psalm 146, let me read it for us, and I hope you'll follow along in your copy of the Scriptures. Hear the Word of God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in the Son of Man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the, the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. By the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So we ask that God will bless the reading and preaching of his word. It is the week of Thanksgiving, and so it makes sense for us to start our week in a psalm of praise. It would feel wrong to kick off our week of giving thanks with a psalm of lament. I decided not to go to a gritty, imprecatory psalm where God destroys all his enemies. Those psalms have a place. We have... Spent time in them, but today it seems fitting to go to a psalm of praise. And as we come to Psalm 146, it's worth noting that it begins the final section of the book of Psalms. There's 150 psalms, and these last five are all psalms of praise. In fact, they all begin and end the same way. And you could look, just cross your page there, 146 to 150. They all begin with the words, praise the Lord, and they all end with the words, Praise the Lord. Or, if you were to read it in Hebrew, it would sound something like this. The beginning word and the last word, Alleluia. Did you know that was a Hebrew word? It's actually two put together. 
halal, which means to praise, and yah, which is a contraction for Jehovah. Hallelujah. Could you say it in a way that you'd hear that? Praise to Jehovah. Hallelujah. As a side note, that might be helpful because we sing songs that include that word, don't we? And maybe you've always thought it seems happy. Well, now you can do some translation in your head. We're singing, praise the Lord. And we have this word, hallelujah, or translated in most of our English translations, praise the Lord at the beginning of each of these last five psalms. You know, as we, as we go through the psalms, and we've spent, I think we're now up to 54 psalms that we've considered together as a church, sporadically over the last few years. We've seen psalms of lament, psalms of suffering, psalms of confession, psalms of thanksgiving. But doesn't it seem fitting? Because all those psalms, lament, suffering, confession, all those psalms, most of the time, are pointing us back to a faithful God, right? There's a couple that leave, leave us hanging a little bit. But for the most part, even the songs of greatest lament still point to a faithful God. Doesn't it make sense that this, this group of 150 psalms would be concluded by praising that God who has seen us through lament and confession and suffering and the rest? The book of Psalms ends with praise. And as we look at our psalm today, the overarching theme is praise. So if someone asks you after church, what was the psalm about? If you say praise, you're right, okay? And we see it there in the verse first. The psalm begins, praise the Lord. It's a call to praise. As we keep going, we see that the psalmist himself responds to his own call to praise. See that in verse 1? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. As I'm reading this, I'm, I, I, I'm pretty certain he's calling the congregation to praise, but then it's like he, he responds himself and says, I will praise. And it's something he wants to do faithfully for all his life. Verse 2, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have being, which is an incredible statement of commitment, an awesome state, statement of devotion. To be able to say, I'll praise the Lord. I'm going to praise him today, but not just today, but tomorrow. And Thanksgiving, that's an easy one. But then even on Friday, and all my life, I'm going to praise him. I think it's a good example for us. We should want to make that kind of commitment. Yet, could it be that that's an easy thing to say and a really hard thing to live out? We even sing some songs like this. We sing 10,000 Reasons. There's a line that song, until my last breath, right? I'm going to sing praise. And it's true. There are days when it's easy to say and to sing that. But how could it be? How do we come to a place where we can truly say that and believe it and live it out? And I would suggest that the only way that we can stick to that kind of commitment is if that kind of commitment is based fully on who God actually is. Because if it's based on our feeling or our emotion or our situation, it's gone quick. It's got to be on something solid. And what I want to give you here in this psalm is some things that you can hold on to 
about God that are, in fact, worthy of praise and that could carry you from this day till the day the Lord calls you home to being a person of praise. If I were to summarize it, the psalm is a psalm that tells us God is worthy of our praise because he is trustworthy, and we can trust him because he is both sovereign and compassionate. It's a call to praise because we can trust him, and we can trust him because he is both sovereign and compassionate. But before he tells us that we can trust him, there's these two verses that makes it hard to create a good outline. Just be honest with what's going on here. It's a psalm all about trust, but then he says, but don't trust. He gives us a warning first. Put not your trust in princes, in the son of man in whom there is no salvation. It's a psalm that encourages us to trust God, but first he acknowledges something that we are all tempted to do. We live in a world, this is just, the way it is, we are all dependent on other people. You are born, and the day you were born, you are utterly dependent on your parents. As we get older, we come under teachers, and we are reliant, we're dependent on them to teach us. As we mature, we find out there are whole systems and structures of authority and government that we rely on. We're a part of churches. Hopefully there's one church, right? We're, we're part, some of you are other churches. We're part of churches, on which we, there's a level of a reliance. We live in a world where we can and must rely on others. We're dependent people. And it's good for us, anarchists hear me, it's good for us to have a level of trust. But what the psalmist is warning about us here is that we can put all of our hope and all of our trust in people, and if we do that, we will be disappointed. He says, don't put your trust in princes. And I was thinking, I searched my heart, friends. I don't think I've ever been guilty of that. There's never been a prince in my life of whom I was tempted to give trust. Harry's never done it for me. He's not my prince but I have been tempted to trust people with influence. And I know what it feels like to put an unhealthy amount of trust in a person of power. You probably have too. I know it's a temptation because two weeks ago we had an election and there were some people who flipped out because the ship has sunk. And there's a place for politics but we've got to recognize where our hope is, where our trust is. And the warning from the psalmist is, don't trust the princes. You can insert presidents if you want. Maybe politics is the furthest thing from your mind, but you put a lot of trust in your financial advisor or in your education or in your spouse or in the church spiritual leader. And while I hope you do have people around you on whom you can depend, I hope you have people you can lean on. I hope our church is something, a, a group of people you can rely on. I hope as your pastor to be someone you can trust. But the reality is if you put all of your trust in any of us, you have to know we're fallible. 
Every person, every organization you're inclined to trust will let you down. Even if they are as perfect as they can be for as long as they have, they are temporary. That's what we see in verse 4, isn't it? When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. There's probably an illustration here from Queen Elizabeth, and she lived for a long time, and a lot of people depended on her. She's gone. It's a stark reminder of the nature of life. There is a day when all of us will breathe our last breath, and it's true of every one of us from the greatest to the least. Our lives will end. The psalmist says we will return to the earth. If you're familiar with the Bible, that probably sounds familiar. Think back to Genesis when Adam and Eve have sinned and then God goes to them and tells them the consequences of their sin. And he says to Adam in particular, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. There's that phrase. For out of the ground you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Now, let me just be clear. We're more than dust. We have eternal souls. But the point in both Genesis and Psalm is true. God made us from the dust, and when our life is over, our bodies return to the dust. The point the psalmist is making is that our lives are temporary. They are numbered. And it's true of all of us. This is the warning. Don't put all of your hope, don't put all of your trust in people, even important, influential people, Because they're temporary and their plans, even their best plans, have an end date. And that may sound like a bleak or depressing way to look at the world. But he's not really pushing us towards bleakness or skepticism or any of that, really. What he's pushing us towards here, friends, is a contrast. If we trust people... Completely, we will be disappointed. But here's the contrast. We have a God who's forever trustworthy. What he's doing here is not making a room of skeptic. He's he's turning our eyes upward. Psalm 118 says it well. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. It's better. And that's the point. And as we keep reading, we see there's actually blessing for those who put their trust in God. Verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God. Which is to say there's, there's blessing, there's happiness, there's favor for those who's God, who has God as their helper, who have God as their hope, who place their trust in God. But this could bring the question for you, it could bring the question for you, why would I trust him? I'm looking around, I know most of you. And I think for most of you, this is a long settled question. But there may be some who have doubts. Maybe you're not sure whether God can be trusted. Maybe your experience has left you convinced he's not trustworthy. If that's you, I just want to invite you to hear what the psalmist says about God in the following verses. He's building a case for the trustworthiness of God. And it comes down to two things that I've said already. He's trustworthy because he's sovereign 
and compassionate, or he's able and he's willing. He's our Father who's in heaven. This is why we can trust him, and we'll see it in the rest of the psalm. Look at verse 6. He made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. The first thing he wants us to recognize is that the God whom he's calling us to put our hope in, he made it all. Everything you see, everything you touch, everything you taste on Thursday, it all comes from him. Heaven and earth and everything in them, which includes us. You know, we read in Genesis, after God creates man, this is Genesis 2, verse 7, it says, The Lord formed the man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. It's a description of the creation of man. He formed us from the dust. He gave us breath. We sang that song. It's our breath. It's your breath in our lungs. He, he, he gives us the breath that we have. And, and I want you to see what the psalmist is doing. This is a really cool contrast. He's told us up in verses 3 and 4, you're going to return to the ground. Your breath is going away. We're dust, and to dust we return. But God is the one, he says here, who made the dust. One day you will breathe your last breath, but God is the one who created breath. So follow the argument. Don't put all your trust in those made of dust. Trust the one who created the dust. Don't put your hope in those whose breath will be lost. Trust the one who created breath, who created life, who lives forever. He made heaven and earth and all that is in them. Let me, let me say this. My fear would be that you would hear this and think that we're trivializing life. I, I want you to hang on because I, I think what you're going to see by the end is that God himself places incredible value on your life. Eternal value. And so we hold these things in each hand. Both our, the temporal nature of our life, but the value of the life. He's helping us see the difference between trusting man and trusting God. We trust God because he's the creator of all things. Because he's always been and will always be. But remember, he's not only the God who's in heaven. He's not only creator God. He's also our father. And we start to see hints of that as we, we keep reading. Verse 6. Who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them. And then we get this short phrase. He says, he keeps faith forever. I always like to tell you when there's phrases that make the translators go home mad. This is one of them. He keeps faith forever. But, but most everyone agrees that the, the meaning is clear. He guards faith. He's the faithful one. His faith will never be released. His faithfulness, excuse me, his faithfulness keeps going. He's faithful. Isn't it significant that he's not only creator, but he's a, a faithful creator? It makes a difference, doesn't it? That he's dependable? When I was in elementary school, um, I remember having a, a thing where I dressed up like a pilgrim or something. Um, 
and we recited Psalm 100. It's a good Thanksgiving psalm, and that's, I, I learned that when I was dressed as a pilgrim, that this is a good Thanksgiving psalm. We, we read it together earlier, but it brings together these two things, the idea of God as creator and God as faithful. I'll just read part of it. He says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. That's why I was dressed as a pilgrim. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his course with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. See these things brought together? He made us. We are his and he's faithful. We can entrust God because he is creator, but not only creator, but faithful creator. And while we can see his faithfulness in creation, we can also see his faithfulness in the way he cares for us. And that's kind of the big idea of verses 7 to 9. I told you earlier that there are some people who want to help but can't. And there are some people who can help but won't. Up to this point, we have established, I think, that God is able to help. But maybe there's still the question of whether or not he will. In the next few verses, we're invited to see the heart of God. We don't have to trust him solely because of his raw power. We can trust him because of his nature, because of his compassion for the weak and the lowly. Look at verse 7. Who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves The righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. A lot of imagery in those verses. Descriptions of those who are helpless and defenseless. In the list, we see those who are weak and needy. And for each of these categories, we see, along with it, the heart and hand of God. Do you notice? Five times the repetition of the name of God. It's Yahweh. Remember in our English translations, if it's in all caps, that's that's telling us that the psalmist is using the proper name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh sets the prisoner free. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh lifts up those who are bowed down. Yahweh loves the righteous. Yahweh watches over the sojourner and the widow and the fatherless. The same Yahweh who created all things who's over all things, who gave us life, he loves justice. He cares for the oppressed and the hungry and the imprisoned. He's merciful. He gives sight to the blind and lifts up those who are brought low. He's compassionate. He cares for the defenseless. So we see this list, and it exposes the heart of God, does it not? We can trust God not only because he's powerful or because he's sovereign or eternal, but we can trust him because he's compassionate to those who cry out to him. Church, in the psalm, we see both God's ability and his desire to care for us. In the psalm, we see the strength of God and the heart of God. A God who cares for the weak. 
Let me say something else about this list. We can turn through the pages of Scripture, and we can see example of how God, through his people, has acted on behalf of the weak and the lowly, physically weak and lowly. In the Old Testament law, I, I think I found 10 passages. I just read the Old Testament and found 10 passages. No, I looked up and I found 10 passages where the people of God were commanded to care for the sojourner and the widow and the fathers. It was saying, people of God care for those who are in need of care. Then in the New Testament, we continue to see that we're called to care for the widow and the orphan. So when I read this list in Psalm 146, we should read it as a reminder that God does, in fact, care about the physically defenseless and marginalized. And the way he normally cares about them, church, is through the people who share his heart and obey his commands. We're told to feed the hungry. We're told to care for the vulnerable. We're told to love the sojourner and the widow and the fatherless. We are called, church, to be the hands and feet of God, the one who cares for the weak and the defenseless. And as we read this text, it should push us to consider that as his people, we should be doing the work of God. I want you to recognize that. And now I want to tell you there's more here than that. In fact, something much more significant than that, but not to diminish that. What we must recognize is that the psalmist is pointing us here primarily to God's compassion for sinners. You know, throughout the scriptures, we're told that our deepest need, our greatest need is to be set free from our sin. We're told in the scriptures we are born as prisoners to sin, born blind to our need for God, born as spiritual aliens and those in need of a father. The primary message of scripture the primary message, and we just acknowledge the Bible speaks to justice for physical issues. But the primary message of Scripture is that God came to free those who are prisoners to sin. The primary message of Scripture is that God came to open the eyes of those who are blinded by sin, to rescue those who are spiritually oppressed and enslaved to their flesh. The primary work of God, and if you really want to know the heart of God, then you have to recognize the links he went to in order to rescue his people from sin. For those of you who know the scriptures, you may recognize this list and think, I didn't think it was in Psalm 146. It's not only in Psalm 146. It's also in Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. Isaiah prophesied there would be one who would come, who would bring good news to the poor, who would bind up the brokenhearted, who would proclaim liberty to the captives, and would open the doors of the prison to those who are bound prophecy given by Isaiah in the Old Testament. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus has come, God in flesh to live among creation. And there was a day when he goes into the synagogue and he was called upon to read the scriptures. And whether he chose it or it was the reading for the day, he came, the scroll was in front of him, and he read from the prophet Isaiah. I mean, I just want to read the account for you. Luke 4 Starting in verse 16, Jesus came to Nazareth, his hometown, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. 
And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. So you have it in your mind? He's reading from the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's Isaiah 61. He rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, which was the position of a teacher. Y'all would all be standing. I would be sitting, okay? He sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Which is a Bible way of saying, that's all about me, folks. I'm the one Isaiah spoke of who came to proclaim good news to the poor, who came to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's true and it's me. And let me say this, during his time on earth, God, Jesus physically restored the sight of blind people. And he physically cared for those who were poor and oppressed. But what's abundantly clear is that what he's talking about in Luke 4 and what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 61, and I believe what the psalmist is primarily talking about in Psalm 146, is what Jesus came to do for the sake of sinners. God sent his son to rescue sinners. Jesus came to save all who will believe from the penalty of their sins. He came and he died. Not to accomplish social justice. Although I told you that's important, right? That's not why he ultimately came. He came so sinners could be set free. He showed us the heart of God. Creator God, sovereign God, almighty God cares deeply for sinners like you and me. He loves us so much that he sent his son to be the sacrifice. Friend, I told you earlier, I'll tell you again. You need forgiveness. And without it, you're eternally separated from God. But for all who call on him in faith and repentance, you can be reconciled. That's a good word. Reconciled to God, brought into right relationship with your creator, and given the hope of eternal life, resurrection, instead of eternal punishment. Jesus came so that all who repent and believe will be saved. This is why he came. And the Bible tells us that all who believe in him will be made righteous. If you look back at the psalm, maybe you noticed in verse 8, we're told the Lord loves the righteous. And then down in verse 10, we're told that the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And the scriptures are clear. While God is compassionate towards those who cry out to him in faith and receive the righteousness of Christ, he is also the judge of the wicked. And our psalmist makes that clear here. Let me just say, it's not inconsistent with his compassion. His justice is not inconsistent with his compassionate heart. In this section of the psalm, our attention is turned both to his compassion and his justice. And I want you to know, if you call out to him, 
you will receive his mercy and compassion. But if you don't, then you will receive his wrath and his justice. What we're seeing here in this part of the psalm is the heart of God. He came to save sinners. Now let's zoom back out. And maybe you could tell me what the main theme of the psalm is. Maybe you can't. It's praise. The main theme of the psalm is praise. We're being called to praise God because he can be trusted. And we can trust him because he is both compassionate and sovereign. And as we come to the end of the psalm, we have another reminder of his sovereignty. Look at verse 10. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. By this point in the sermon, I hope you recognize that God is worthy of our praise and our trust. Not only because he's compassionate, but also because he will reign forever. Because it's one thing to have someone who's willing, but if they're not able then it doesn't help. I mean, we feel good, but we still need help. Church, the one who cares for us and defends us will never be defeated. The one who saved us from our sins will never be overpowered or overcome. The one who promises eternal life will reign forever. And if there was any doubt about the duration of his reign, then our trust in him would be uncertain. Remember, don't trust in princes. Their life ends. So trust in the one whose life and reign never ends. He's king forever. And the king who reigns forever is also your father. So you can trust him. Because not only is he able, but he's willing. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That's how the psalm ends the same way it started. Praise the Lord. And it's a praise that should go beyond singing. It's a praise that should go beyond Sunday mornings. It's a praise that should ooze out of every part of our lives. It's a praise that should make us obedient. It's a praise that should make us evangelistic. It's a praise that should lead us to have the kind of heart that God has for the weak and the vulnerable. We should be people of active, life-changing praise because we have been bought by the God who is sovereign and compassionate. And maybe that's where we should end. There's a couple more things I want to do. I think it's important that we connect this. If we just leave saying, celebrate Thanksgiving, then we've kind of missed the point, haven't we? I want to acknowledge once again that you may be tempted to trust in things and people that will ultimately fail you. So I want to encourage you this week, as you read about the imperfections of the government, as you work with imperfect people, as you recognize the imperfections of your spouse or of your parents or of those who have authority over you in your work, as you recognize the faults and frailty of those around you, you may be tempted at times to despair. Fox News will tell you to despair. Your coworkers will tell you that because of the decisions your boss is making, you should despair. 
Churches, you see the limitations of trusting people who are prone to weakness. I hope you'll be reminded that you're cared for by the one who will reign forever and who has no limitations and who cares for you. One other thing. I hope this doesn't happen this week. But at some point, all of us are going to lose people around us to death. On those days, we will be reminded in the most brutal way that our life on earth is temporary. And friend, I hope Psalm 146 is a psalm that you can use now to prepare yourself. These are truths that we must rehearse now. That while life is temporary, there is a God who is eternal. And we can trust him with eternity. This is a truth that can give us hope on days of despair. It's a message that we should share with others. So that they too can have hope on their final day. And if we believe all this, that there is a truth that could carry us even on life's worst days, then what else could we say but hallelujah? Praise the Lord. May this be our song. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. May this be our song today and forever. Let's pray.